about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. When they began looking for him among their friends and relatives, oh, then they began, beg your pardon. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Did you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. This is what the Lord. Good evening, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you. My name is David. I usually attend morning church or sit in my lounge room like uh, everyone else. Uh, And uh, otherwise, I belong to the ministry at Moore College. So while the preaching cat's away, uh, a mouse has been asked to come and fill in. Please uh, keep that reading from Luke open in front of you and good evening to our viewers from home tonight. Uh, If I don't make proper eye contact with the screen it's actually because I can't see the back of the church Uh, and so I'll try and be bigger. So Luke 2, now there's a parental nightmare in this story, did you notice it? It goes a little bit like this, where's our son? I don't know, I thought he was with you. Isn't he with the other kids? No, all the other kids are here, but he's not with them. I can't see him. That was the beginning of the end of our first experience of Vivid. That audiovisual spectacular staged around Circular Quay and Hyde Park. You may remember being out in Sydney each winter as the annual display of light and sound filled the evening skylight with lasers, phases and phrases of electric music. You may even recall having vast crowds surround you, especially on the weekends. It's a little hard to believe two years into a pandemic, I know, But this was properly and claustrophobically crowded, cheek and jowl, mosh pit style. And somewhere along the Opera House forecourt, we lost our five-year-old son. 
Amelia and I, uh, some of our in-laws and all our children had gone into the city to enjoy the evening festival, much like pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem for the great feast. Except rather than singing psalms along the way as we went up to the royal city to celebrate God's great act of liberation with the Passover, that special remembrance feast that formed a new nation and made Moses the prince of Egypt, we were slogging our way through the morass of rubbernecking gawkers along the Opera House forecourt, all hoping to gain the best picture of those glorious sails. Seeing the mob was against us, our modest caravan decided to retreat to a gelato bar there around where they serve lots of oysters. And that's where we discovered that somehow we'd lost our preschool-aged son who'd been carried along with the tide of bodies to the Lord only knew where. So we split up our adult searching devices, uh, resources, dived into the eddy of currents uh, that was humanity moving in different directions and started looking for him. Now, at one level, it's actually quite hard to panic in that sort of a situation because when people are up against you like this, it's kind of hard to see any individual, let alone a child in the dark, but from time to time, I was pressed to a standstill uh, by a human current and my worst demons sunk their claws into my attention, hoping to overcome the better angels of my trust in God's sovereignty. This morning's Bible story relates the story of a lost boy. Sorry, I preached in the morning as well. This evening's Bible story relates the story of a lost boy. In the midst of their efforts to honour the Lord, Mary and Joseph lose their 12-year-old son. Or really, maddeningly, and perhaps only as a pre-teen could, he decided that there were more important things for him to do than to go home with his parents. It's a timely story for us to hear again as we begin a new year amidst the chaos of the next chapter of the pandemic. It's not timely in the sense that you can expect some quick tips on how to be a better parent uh, or living with tweens or even making safe family arrangements for holidays during a peak season. Last week, if you were with us or tuned in to hear Matt speak, we were, through Mary, warned that the story of Jesus, the Christ, would be like a sword piercing our soul and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, long before we talked about deconstructing faith, God sent Jesus into the world to deconstruct people's misconceptions about what it means to trust in a sovereign God. Today's episode gives us the first real example of this in Mary's experience. But in God's kindness, it's actually timely for us as well. Because it opens up an everyday question, even for people who don't have kids. One way or another, it opens up the kind of question like this. Does God really care about my anxieties? Or as Mary herself put it in Luke chapter 2, verse 48, 
Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why have you treated me like this? Don't you care about my pain? It's a question many of you may well have put to God our Father in these last two years, if not before, whether it's because of COVID or really just the rest of life. The answer to this question from Jesus may well pierce your soul tonight, or at least, perhaps uncomfortably, reveal the thoughts of many. Yet it's a timely reminder of what it means to trust Jesus to be God's choice for our Lord as well as our Saviour. So let's have a brief look at this special story. But first, uh, please join me uh, as I pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we do pray for your grace this evening uh, in the stillness as we hear this special story uh, of the mission of Jesus, your love for us through him uh, and the reality of trusting him to be our Lord as well as our Saviour. Use your spirit, Father, to open our hearts that we might hear your voice for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Now, whenever we read the Bible, we need to get a good sense of the context in which this bit of the Bible fits uh, in order to make better sense of it. And if we were watching a Jesus movie right now instead of making our way through the Bible story, if we were watching the Jesus movie, we've probably just come from a screen to black and the words 12 years later would appear. Because there's about 12 years between what Matt preached for us about last week in church and what we're looking at today. Chapter 2 verse 40 says, The boy grew up became strong, filled with wisdom and God's grace was on him. Sometime later, in fact, 12 years later, after his circumcision and dedication, we find both parents faithfully observing the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 41. Every year his parents travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. I've just realised that I don't have to have all this business on. Do you, do you lose track of when you've got this stuff on? On, off, on, off. Oh, my face feels much bigger now. Okay, where were we? A picture of a pious and devoted family. Only the men of the family were required to do this, but our story begins with both Mary and Joseph on their way to celebrate the great feast which shows us how devoted they were. At 12, the young Jesus, he's not required to go up with the family because like every other Jewish tween, his whole 12th year is about learning what his responsibilities will be once he comes of age at 13. The Passover is the national identity feast at the centre of the nation. Unlike Australia Day or even Anzac Day, Passover is the feast that commemorates the creation of the people of God who freed their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. Or as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, Moses said to Israel, Set aside the month of Aviv, 
and observe the Passover to the Lord your God because the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night in the month of Aviv. Sacrifice to the Lord your God a Passover animal from the herd or flock in the place where the Lord chooses to have his name dwell. That is, in the central temple in Jerusalem. And all the adult males from all throughout the nation were required to come up and observe this feast. Now, of course, having been the perfect parent myself, I have a few questions for Mary and Joe at this stage. Hashtag neglectful. Where did they stay in Jerusalem such that the parents can depart and not notice that Jesus isn't with them? Where did he remain? Well, from a historical records, it's most likely that Mary and Joseph took all their children in a group of their extended male relatives and friends down to Jerusalem from Nazareth to the festival. Pilgrims travelled in large groups or caravans to enjoy safety in numbers as they made their way from all over the nation into the capital city. It appears that they stayed for the whole festival rather than just the official days of the public sacrifice and this is where our story starts to slow down completely. Chapter 2 verse 43. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. Assuming he was in the travelling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him amongst their relatives and friends. So they go looking and they find him sitting among the teachers. Now at this point, my child protection spidey senses really are starting to tingle, I have to tell you. How has he remained there all this time? Why didn't anybody ask where his parents were? What's wrong with you people? But these are not important details in the story, which prompts us to consider the real meaning of this last episode in Jesus' childhood. So chapter 2, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and answers. All those who heard him were amazed at his contributions to the discussion. He's a boy with a thirst to understand and discuss spiritual matters. He's zealous in the best possible sense. But the scene itself is kind of bland, really, apart from the bystander's assessment of his interaction. They're amazed or even confused about him. They're astonished at the depths of his insight. He is literally wise beyond his years. Now, my friends who teach, especially those who teach at independent schools, tell me that every middle class child has a, every middle class family has a gifted and talented child. Uh, any of you who are teachers in the room can confirm that with me later. I can see a few of you smiling already. But it's wisdom and depth of insight into the things of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, where Jesus really shines. For a 12-year-old, he seems to have an amazing understanding of what the Bible teaches about God's will for his people, in which the young Jesus stands out amongst his peers. He is, after all, the child of a builder's labourer. So it, it's, you know, it's kind of like goodwill hunting. 
this kid who does labouring jobs seems to be kind of a savant when it comes to discussing what the Bible means. Now, as much as the Christian stories about Jesus stress his community with us, this story helps us not to forget an essential truth about him, that in many ways, and by the grace of God, Jesus is not like every other child. He's not like every other human, for that matter. Jesus of Nazareth, who will be called the Christ, is not the first Christian. He didn't really come here to join in with us. He came here so that we might join with him. God sends his son into the world that was made for him to be his ruler over it. And this brings us to the central meaning of the message in this passage here. You see, the teachers in the temple are not the only ones who are astonished at Jesus. Did you notice that as we read through? Look at chapter 2, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, it's hardly an unreasonable question, is it? We all know that any 12-year-old boy who's not in his bedroom attached to some kind of electronic gaming device is probably dead in a ditch somewhere. That is, after all, the first question that their mothers always ask them. Where are you? You're dead in a ditch somewhere? Your mother probably asked you an equivalent uh, at some point as well, I'm sure. But Jesus' parents are astonished at something else. They're astonished at his attitude towards them. Since Mary's only concern is the anxiety that his concern caused them. Oi! What are you doing here? What's wrong with you? Your father and I. And the thing, the thing is, this is not just a hyper-anxious parent talking. Mary's actually speaking with the authority of the scriptures themselves. Let me read to you some Old Testament passages which I think directly rub up against this story. Leviticus 19 verse 3. Each of you is to respect his mother and father. You are to keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Proverbs 1 verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and don't reject your mother's teaching for they will be a garland of favour on your head and pendants around your neck. And then, of course, there's the fifth commandment. Does anyone know what that is? Take a guess. It's got something to do with parents. Thank you. Deuteronomy 5.16 Honour your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and so that you may prosper in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In his twelfth year, the year in which he's meant to be learning all his responsibilities before coming of age, you would think that obeying his parents was at the top of that list. But God has chosen Jesus to be unlike any other twelve-year-old. And it seems that he already has some kind of sense of that. Look at verse 49. Look at his response to the godly complaint of his mother. 
Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? See what Jesus says there? See how he talks? Jesus refers to God as his father in a tone that indicates that they should have known all along where he would be. This could be the tone of a pre-teen. Some of you may have heard this, particularly if you're involved in youth ministry here at church. I'm thinking of that tone that inspires an adult or a parent to encourage the tween to leave home now while you still know everything. But that's not what Jesus is talking like. Jesus sees himself as being about his father's business. That's a remarkable thing to say to his parents, don't you think? At this point in the story, only we as readers know Mary's secret. That actually Joseph isn't Jesus' real father. What we have here in Luke's story is some kind of insight on the part of the boy into his mission. And this is the first announcement of it and the first point of tension with his family. The first time that the promises made to Mary about her son would be like a sword that could pierce her soul. Now at one level, every pious Israelite could claim that their greatest responsibility was to be in the house of God. We recited Psalm 84 together, remember? Better a day in the house of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. Or listen to Psalm 27 verse 4. I've asked one thing from the Lord, it's what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, seeking him in his temple. And yet that's not what Jesus is talking like either, is it? You see, it's really only the Messiah of God who should or even could refer to God as his Father. Since it's only to his Messiah that God says things like what we read in Psalm 2. This is Psalm 2 verse 7. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. You know, by far the majority of references to God as Father in the whole Bible are on the lips of Jesus himself. No one refers to God as Father more than Jesus does and no one calls God his Father like Jesus does because he is the Christ, God's specifically chosen King. As I mentioned earlier, this passage is included in Luke's story to remind us that Jesus is not like other children. Earlier in this gospel, when significant characters made prophetic announcements about Jesus, they continually made reference to Jesus being born as a son of David, the king of Israel, God's specifically chosen ruler. The Messiah has a unique relationship with God, even the temple as the one who will lead the people of God in right worship. You see, it's King David who stumps up all the cash and materials to build the temple. He buys the plot of ground on which the temple is to sit. 
It's King David who leads Israel in worship as the Ark of the Covenant, the special uh, covenant box of God, is taken up into Jerusalem. And it's Solomon, David's great son, who builds the temple and then leads all the people in dedicating the temple as the house of God in prayer to the people. That's the job of God's specifically chosen Messiah, his son. As then, so now, ten centuries later, David's greatest son, Jesus of Nazareth, is found to be about his father's business in the temple. Central to such worship will be the Torah that the teachers have been discussing because the Torah is all about God's relationship to his presence amongst his people in the temple. And that's the context in which God makes his promises to David and his sons that he will rule the world forever. And so not surprisingly, the infancy narratives in Luke start in the temple and Luke's gospel finishes in the temple. In fact, Jesus will go to the cross because of his disagreement with the church rule, with the temple rulers, slip of the tongue there, he will go to the cross because of their envy about him and his claims over God's temple. The youthful Jesus certainly perceives something special about himself in relation to God's word and the teachers of Israel. And it's something that transcends the duties of a son towards even his parents and family. But poor Mary isn't ready to hear that though. And she won't be until her son is raised from the dead, triumphant as the Christ of God and Saviour of the world. Well, what about us? What's the significance of this little story to us here in Newtown and Erskineville and in isolation? Well, you'll be glad to know that Amelia and I found our son that night in the crowd at Vivid. He's just under two metres tall now and weighs around 100 kilos, so he turned out okay. The young Jesus goes back to live with Mary and Joseph in Nazareth as an obedient son who matures or progresses in his obedience to God and with everyone else. He is the good son of the fifth commandment. The passage ends with him upholding the law for the rest of their lives together and it does go well with him in the land and with all people. For the rest of his youth, he will be the young man that the Lord requires of all young men honouring his father and mother. But the significance of this passage for us, what it looks like in the everyday, as people so often ask, comes down to Jesus' self-understanding and the clash between this and the expectations of his family. Mary is, in the first instance, rightly anxious about Jesus. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I think we ask this question of Jesus all the time, probably in a different form, but I think it goes something like this. How could you treat me this way? Why are you so insensitive to my anxieties? Why don't you care about me and what I care about? 
If God is so good, why don't things turn out for me like I hoped or planned? Why can't my heavenly father be a proper parent and swoop in and make sure nothing bad ever happens to me? That's what it is to be a real parent, isn't it? Well, that's certainly the burden under which they live. As Mary would eventually and even painfully learn, Jesus needed to serve God before he served her. You see, God only listens to prayers, not advice. I'm a professional Christian. I give God advice all the time. But he only listens to prayers. And his goodness towards us, his faithfulness to his promises for us, can only be seen clearly through the lens that is his son, Jesus the Christ, who he chose to die for the forgiveness of our sin and to save us from God's judgment. If you're anxious about what Jesus is doing for you right now, the Bible tells us that he's praying for you, praying for us. He's presenting his perfect, sinless, faultless life before God to cover over our failures. When we fail ourselves, when we fail each other, but most importantly, when we fail God. When we fail to see that what God is offering us in Jesus is good. When we're tempted to think that God isn't good because things don't work out like we'd like them to. Now, we would never say this out loud, but I wonder sometimes, do we find ourselves thinking, you know, in that hidden social media self, the one that's behind Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you know, not the one that we project to the world, which is beautiful and wonderful and imminently likable, but that, that hidden self. Do we find ourselves sometimes wondering, well, okay, dying on the cross is all well and good, and rising to life again is great, and, you know, thanks, but, well, really, no thanks. That's what I need right now. To be honest, I'm more in danger of being cancelled by my workmates than facing the judgment of God. That's what I've got to live with. I'd really like to be at home in my body. I'm not really interested in having a home in heaven. I'd really like to have a spouse. I'd really like to have a job that I can succeed in, that I can be someone in. That's what I really need, God. All this other stuff is great, but it's not what I need now. And you don't seem to care about me. Why have you treated us like this, son? Don't you know that your father and I were anxiously searching for you? But Jesus had to be about God's business for us. He's busily 
ensuring that when we go to work tomorrow, we will be blameless and faultless and pure and holy before the creator of the world. And nothing can take that away from us. His spirit is at work in us, prompting our hearts and eyes to keep looking to Jesus who stands there for us. That's the good that God is doing for us right now, all the time. And the challenge for our goals this year, for our faith, for our anxieties, is to trust that that actually is good. Now Jesus staked his life on it. He went to the cross for us to save us and preserve us and release us from condemnation, from alienation, from injustice and from all the other crappy stuff that happens in our lives. He is there for us right now and in his spirit working for us, amongst us. So please join with me as I pray for us. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us for forgetting how special you are and how good you are and all that you have done for us and are doing for us. Please use your spirit to help us see afresh in this new year that you are for us and that you are more than we want for ourselves. Please give us courage uh, and the power of your spirit to trust in your goodness and faithfulness to us. For God's glory's sake we pray. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.